Wrong beliefs make you miserable, can destroy your life, and can cause you to miss out on a heavenly eternity. This message is the second in the series, Believable. The message is entitled, What Do You Believe About God? Here is Pastor Dalo Shields. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and your teaching sheets tonight as we get ready to continue our series together entitled Believable. I want to talk this weekend about what do you believe about God? Actually, just to give you a little heads up this evening, uh, you're going to see that on your notes tonight, I think there are, I believe there are eight different points that we have. We're only going to cover three of those, and so, uh, uh, so we're going to save some of it for next week. So I'm going to take this in bite-sized pieces, and uh, I will be giving you some things this evening that are not on your notes, so you may want to find some of that space available uh, that we're not utilizing this weekend that we'll use next weekend to take some of these extra notes. We're talking about what do you believe about God? Your beliefs are very, very powerful. In this series, we're talking about how to develop the right kind of beliefs because your beliefs are the operating system of your spirit and your soul. Your life operates on the basis of your beliefs. It is the software system of your life. And right beliefs will make your life better. Right beliefs will make your life stronger. Right beliefs will make the lives of those around you better and stronger. And wrong beliefs will make you miserable. They will absolutely eat away at your soul and eat away at your life in a very significant way. And the beginning place really for establishing right beliefs in your life is to have the right belief about God. That's where everything starts because the right belief about God frames every other belief in your life. If your belief about God is not really correct and accurate and based upon truth, then you're going to have faulty beliefs about yourself. You'll have faulty beliefs about other people. You'll have faulty beliefs about the world around you. You need to make sure that you believe the right things about God. And sadly, it really is true, but very, very sad. Though a lot of people go through their entire life suffering with and having to suffer the consequences of a distorted set of beliefs about God. And sometimes because of our bad life experiences and bad life exposures, we get images in our mind about God that are not true. And then we relate to God on the basis of what we think he is rather than who he really is. And so that affects us in adverse ways. So I want to talk to you for a few moments. And these are some things that are not on your notes. But I do want to talk to you for a few moments about some faulty beliefs that you can have about God. Seven, I'm going to give you seven mistaken beliefs that you have about God. Now, if you don't have enough paper there for you to write that down, I would encourage you to find an extra sheet uh, of paper, or you can get the CD of this. This is a free of charge at the end of the service today, and go back and study these together. It'll also be online as well that you can free, uh, download freely as well. I believe that happens on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, but we want to cover seven wrong beliefs about God. Are you ready for these? They'll be on the screen for you, okay? Even though they're not on your notes. First of all, we may believe that God doesn't exist, that God is a figment of people's imagination. What do we call that? It's called atheism, right? The atheist says God doesn't exist or God is a figment of someone's imagination. Atheism is not always that hardcore. Sometimes it's called agnosticism that I don't really know if I believe in a God or sometimes it's just simply skepticism. And people who are basing their worldview or their perceptive perception of God on atheistic mindset, agnostic mindset, or skeptical, a skeptical mindset, they're basing their life or their mindset about God on the basis of naturalism or materialism. That is, they have writ they've written out any possibility of something that is super. Supernatural. 
There's some folks in our world today that would say, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists or I'm agnostic. I'm not really sure that there's a God. The second faulty belief about God is we can believe that God exists, but he doesn't get involved with the world or with people, that he is disengaged and detached, disconnected. This is commonly referred to as deism. And deism said that God created the world and he stepped away. And so the world is kind of on its own. That God is not intimately involved with his creation. That God is distant from it. He got everything in motion, but he's not engaged. And there's some people that actually have this mindset. They may not necessarily call themselves a deist. It's not necessarily a word that we use or a term that we use in today's culture, but they are practical deists. They have this mindset that somehow God is not involved in the world, in their world. Thirdly, we can have a faulty belief that God is angry and hard, tough, mean, abusive, overly demanding, domineering, that God is sort of grumpy, capricious, moody, temperamental, arbitrary, contrary, impartial. All those words really describe people oftentimes who've had a very negative relationship with maybe a, an earthly father and their earthly father was hard and angry and tough and mean. And so when they think about God as a father, that's the only way they can relate, relate to him is that God must be angry like my dad was. God must be hard like my father was. He must be abusive or just sort of capricious. You never quite know what God is going to do. And we may not consciously think of God in these terms, but it can affect us emotionally and spiritually in our relationship with him. The fourth one is we can believe that God is cold, distant, aloof, uncaring. God just sort of a cold being. It's not so much that he's angry, but he's just cold. He's just aloof. You can't really connect with him. The fifth one is he's unreachable, unreliable, or unknowable. Some people say, you know, I'm not sure you can even know God. How, how can you even know him? How can you have any confidence that you can have a relationship with him? The sixth one is that some folks believe that God is outdated, out of touch, irrelevant, and some folks would say God is inept. If you look at our world today, you say, well, does God really know what's going on? Can God understand a computer? Can God understand high technology? Can God understand the kind of stuff that we have in our world today? Certainly God must sort of be an outdated concept or an outdated entity. He's sort of not up to date. He's like a, an old grandfather that can't quite stay up with where the world is now. There's a seventh view of God, and that's he's sort of what I would call Santa Clausish. He's sort of the, he, another phrase would be sort of vending, vending machine-ish. I'm making these words up, by the way, okay? <laughs> or on demandish. What that means is this, is that you only go to God when you want to get something. If you push the right buttons, you get what you want. Don't push the right buttons. You can't get what you want. And so here's sort of a Santa Claus up in the sky or an on-demand God that I press it when I want certain things, but otherwise I don't have much of a relationship with God. Now, why does it matter what you believe in God? Let me reiterate it again, because your beliefs about God will determine your relationship with God. Did you hear me? What you believe about God, if you look over those seven things, those misbeliefs or wrong views of God, if you have one of those or any combination of these, when these are in operation in your life, it's going to affect how you actually relate to God. It's going to affect how you view yourself. It's going to affect how you view other people. It's going to affect how you interact with the world around you. Now, what are some of the signs that you have an inappropriate or wrong perception of God, wrong image of God, wrong mindset or belief set about God. Let me give you eight symptoms of a faulty view of God. These are not on your notes either, but I encourage you to either listen closely or try to take these down as we go through them. Number one, you will serve God and obey God out of duty 
or from the fear of punishment rather than from a heart of love. There are a lot of people, the way they serve God and they obey God is the only reason they really obey Him is because they don't want God to punish them. And so if your view of God is that He's an angry God, if He's sort of mad at you all the time, then the way you'll relate to Him is that you'll relate to Him on the basis of avoiding His punishment. So you might obey Him, but you're not obeying Him out of a loving relationship. You're obeying Him out of a fear-based relationship. The second way that you might know that you have a faulty view of God is you may have a consistent and persistent sense of guilt and shame and condemnation and failure as a Jesus follower. There are a lot of Christians like that. They feel like they're never quite good enough. They feel like maybe they can't quite please God enough, that they're never going to be acceptable to God, which is contrary to the very nature of God as we're going to see in just a few moments because God wants you to experience His acceptance. He wants you to experience His grace and to know that That His grace is enough to bring you into right relationship with Him. The third way that you might know that you have a wrong perception of God is you will mistrust God and His plan for your life. That when you think about trying to invite God to do His will for you, you're a little bit afraid of that, if not significantly afraid of that, because you don't quite trust Him to take care of your life. You You feel more comfortable being in charge yourself than allowing God to be in charge of your life. The fourth way is by negative attitudes and words that are more prevalent and powerful in your life than positive ones. If you have a tendency to be on the negative side of life, chances are you need to adjust your mindset of God because God is a positive God. Amen? And so if you're living in the negative all the time, then something about your view of God needs to be adjusted. It is a symptom. It is a sign that there's something that needs to be tweaked, if you will, in the way that you view what your beliefs are about God. The fifth one is that you may live a life where I would, the way I've said it here is that you play more defense than offense in your life. There are a lot of people who live their life this way because they don't have the right belief in God. They're always playing defense. They're sort of holding life back a bit and they're afraid to take any risk along their journey. They're afraid to do much of anything and they live a life of defensiveness and a life of fear because they're on the defense rather than on the offense. And when you really have a good perspective of God, it will cause you to to take some offensive positive steps in your life that otherwise you would not take. Everybody's staying with me so far. Number six is that you will know or may know that you have a faulty perception of God because you resist or when you resist lovingly and freely, freely sharing your faith with other people. What I've learned about sharing faith is I've learned that the more I have an adequate and accurate view of God, the more easy it is for me to share my faith with others. Because when you're in love with God because of who God is, it becomes a natural thing to tell other people about the one that you're in love with, Right? But if you're in a place where you view God in a negative perspective as sort of a mean, angry God or a cold, distant God or a God that's not really involved much with life, then that's not very exciting to share with other people about. But when you have this perspective of who God really is, it's natural to share that with others. Number seven, we've got two more in this section. Number seven, a way that you know that your beliefs about God are faulty is that you have given up on yourself and your potential for spiritual growth. And there's some folks that are there. That you just feel like that you've messed up so much and failed so much along the journey that you've kind of given up on yourself and you've lost that sense of any possibility. Or the next one, number eight, you've given up on others and you've become bitter. You'll either give up on yourself or give up on other people. And I will tell you that ultimately in life, when your view of God is not correct, it can lead you quite often down the pathway of hopelessness and bitterness in your life. Hopelessness in the sense of I'm never going to be able to change. My life is never going to be indifferent. 
and bitterness when it comes to relationships because you've had the view that other people will never change as well. All of these are indicators. These are symptoms. Just like when you're trying to diagnose a medical problem in your life, you have to look at the symptoms. What are the symptoms saying? And here are the eight symptoms or eight of the symptoms that could point to the fact that perhaps your view of God is inadequate, faulty, or needs to be adjusted so that you can believe the right things about God. So can I ask you, are any of these symptoms prevalent in your life? Are any of these symptoms a part of how you view God? And if so, what do you need to change about your beliefs related to God? And so tonight and next weekend, I'm going to share with you what the Bible teaches us about God. What should you believe about God? And again, why is this important? Why am I taking the time to tell you why what we should believe about God. Because what you believe about God affects every other part of your life. Amen? If you don't get this one right, you'll not get anything else right, okay? If you don't have the right view of God, you'll not have any other part of your life. You'll not view yourself right, the right way, etc. as we talked about a few moments ago. So this is vital to your experience and vital to your existence as a Christian believer. And so that's why I'm slowing down a little bit and taking only three of these this evening. Let's take a look at three things that you and I need to believe about God. What does the Bible teach us in relationship to who God is and what you are to believe about Him? Number one, we must believe and we are called to believe that God is a real and living God. It'll be okay if you say amen after each one of these, all right? That God is a real and living God. I want to stand before you this evening as I'm sure that many, if not most, if not all of us would do tonight if we could stand up and do so and declare, I believe that God is real. I believe that God exists. One of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible is the very first verse in the Bible. We tend to run past that verse and move on through our Bible reading at times. We fail to recognize the power of Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. How did God start His book? God started His book with these words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Read it with me again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, there was a beginning, and therefore, because there was a beginning, there was a cause or a creator of the beginning. This is important. Okay. See, for many centuries, those that were students, some who were students of science would say, well, there really was no beginning of time, that the universe existed into eternity until a number of years back and the Big Bang Theory came into existence and the awareness that scientists started accepting the fact that the universe had a point of beginning. Well, duh, that's what the Bible said all along, right? So the Big Bang Theory said, well, there's this universe that happened, but as we're going to see in just a moment, with a, an event, there has to be a cause of the event. And so, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When it all started, that's what a beginning is, God was before the beginning, okay? 
God didn't begin. In the beginning, God did something, okay? And so God exists beyond the beginning of our universe, beyond the beginning of time, space, and matter. God existed before this time. And so God is the, is the, is the eternally existent God. Notice Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so we start this whole idea of what do I believe about God? Well, number one, I can't go anywhere in a relationship with God if I'm not sure that God exists. I start with this basic foundation of faith that says I have solid belief inside of me that there is a real and living God that exists. I believe that God exists. That's where my faith starts. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him, what's the first thing that must happen, must believe that He exists. So my question to you tonight is, do you believe that God exists? Do you believe in the existence of an almighty God, an omniscient God, an omnipotent God? As I've been just preparing for this series of messages, I've been reflecting on why I believe in the existence of God and why others believe in the existence of God. I'm going to give you, if you want to write these down, I'm going to give you four arguments for the existence of God. And I'm not a philosopher, and so I'm not here tonight to try to espouse philosophy or go into all the details of the philosophies of these, but I believe that they will be important for your continued study or certainly for your thought. First of all, we can believe that God exists by reason of the principle or the argument of first cause. And the argument of first cause is this. Everything that comes into existence has a cause. Would you agree with that? You have a car, most of you do, right? That, that car you experience and you utilize, that automobile, but that automobile you realize because of just logical thinking that it didn't just show up one day, right? That car went through a manufacturing process and people put all the pieces together. Everything was made and it was delivered to a, a, a dealer somewhere and you went and purchased it and then it became your vehicle. But it was something that was that now is in existence, but it was in existence because it had a cause, all right? And so everything that comes into existence has a cause, all right? Now, the universe and life came into existence. In the beginning... In the beginning, God created. So there's an existence of the universe. And so if the universe came into existence, if life came into existence, there had to be a cause of the universe and a cause of life that goes beyond the universe and beyond life itself. And so that's why we know that you can't have something that brings something into existence unless it's already self-existent. Are you with me here? So the self-existence of God brought our universe and life into existence. So this is so important that we, you know, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. It really does. It takes more faith to believe that all this sort of just happened. You mean all this sort of happened, just kind of throw some minerals and throw some gases together and boom, look at who we are. Amazing. 
Now, it takes a lot of faith to even have that kind of mindset, but we believe that God created. So it's the principle of the first cause, that God is the cause. The second principle is the principle of design or the argument of design. When you look at creation, you see that in creation there is design, there is order, there is design. You cannot help but look at a flower and see the beauty of its design, all the different colors. You look at DNA and realize that in DNA there's something that represents order and structure and design, and there can't be design design without a designer. You can't have design without a designer. Okay. The third reason that we can argue for, and these are just four that, of many that we could look at, but the fourth one is by reason of conscience and morality. That because we have a conscience, there's an awareness of right and wrong. Who put that in us? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we have any sense of morality? Because we believe that there is a moral force who created us and a moral God who created us that put His law in the concept of the world, in the, in the very DNA of who we are as human beings. We have some awareness of consciousness of morality and a conscience that responds to right and wrong. The fourth category. Any, this, this helping anybody here tonight? I'm having fun if you're not, okay? The fourth one is what I would call the fine-tuning principle. The fine-tuning principle. Do you know that life on earth, just let's talk about just life on earth for a moment, is balanced on a knife's edge of some constants, okay? I mean, on a very, very... If gravity, for example, if gravity, if, if gravity were tweaked in a few degrees one way or a few degrees the other way, we would either explode or implode, okay? If the earth were a little bit closer to the sun than it is, we would burn up. If it were a little bit further from the sun than it is, we would freeze, right? That's called the fine-tuning principle. Somebody was playing with the dials. Amen? Are you with me here? Okay. We talk about the chemical composition of the atmosphere that we live in. If just a few tweaks, a little more nitrogen than oxygen, a little more of these elements rather than other, than just a little tweak in these directions, suddenly life would not even be possible. Are you, are you telling me that you can't believe that there is a God? I'm telling you, I believe that our God exists. He is the cause. He is the designer. He is the one that places morality and a conscience in us. He is the one that establishes the fine-tuning. God is the one that set the dials for us so that life could happen. Amen? So our first belief is our belief, our solid belief that God is a real and living God. Number two, we need to believe and know that the Scripture teaches us that there is one God, eternally present in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is important. What we believe about God we believe that He is one God, eternally present in three persons. This is called the Trinity. In just a moment, I'm going to help you understand why this is important, that you and I believe that in the Trinity. One God, three persons. But let me explain this to you. God, by nature and by choice and by design and by who He is, exists in unity and community, okay? There's unity and community in the Godhead. Three and one, one and three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is one, He is three. It's a mystery. There's no way that I can stand here tonight, nor can anyone stand and explain to you the mystery of the Trinity. There's the one in three and the three in one. 
Notice what the scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23. Listen to these words. I'm going to, let's see, you don't have these, these verses on your notes, do you, right? You have the reference, right? But you don't have the full verse, correct? All right. So I'll just, I'll highlight them as we go through them on the screen. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. Say that phrase with me. There is no God like you. So let's stop for a moment. So suddenly now in the Bible, we're being told of all the gods, little g, that were worshipped among all the heathen nations. Now the prophets and the the folks of Israel speak out and say to God, God, we know something about you. There is no God like you, okay? So it's describing a uniqueness to the nature and character of God. There's no God like you in heaven above or on the earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. And so what I want you to see tonight is that when we talk about the Trinity, okay, God being one but three and one, three and yet one, one yet three, then there's a uniqueness to our God. Our God is unique from any other God that is proclaimed by any other religion in the world. We serve a God who is unique. There is no God like our God. He exists both in unity and in community. This is vital to us. Because of that, we learn that we need not only unity with God, but community with one another. And so God created us in His image so that we could have unity with God, but also community with one another. Now, where's this concept of the Trinity found in the Bible? It's found in several places in the Bible, although the the term Trinity is not found in Scripture. If you go to a uh, a concordance and look up the word Trinity, you're not going to find that word, but it's a theological term that describes a reality that's, that's, that's given to us in Scripture. The first place that we find this is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let, what's the next word there? Us make man in our image. Last time I checked, those are, those are plural pronouns. Would you agree with me? Let us make God or make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So in the very beginning of time and the very work of creation, we have the emphasis of the Trinity. Now we go to the book of Matthew, and in the book of Matthew, we see another illustration of this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when Jesus was being baptized. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So you've got Jesus, the Son of God, on earth. You've got the Spirit, that He's Spirit of God, that He's seeing and experiencing there in that moment, coming down upon Him like a dove. And you have the voice of the Father speaking, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So there in that moment, there's this amazing convergence of Father, Son, Holy Spirit at the beginning point of Jesus' ministry. Now, why is this so vital? Because this helps us to understand something about Jesus and we have our faith in Jesus that he is God. Jesus is not just, if you will, an expression of God. Jesus himself is God. 
This is vital to us as believers that we understand that Jesus didn't just come to sort of show us a little bit about God. No, Jesus came as God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is very theologically vital to us that we understand that our Jesus, our Savior, is God Himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity helps us to understand the very nature of God. The Spirit of God, for example, comes as the encourager to us, as the filler, the empowerer in our lives so we understand the nature of God. Number three, the third and final thing this evening. I love this one. I love all of these. What do we need to believe about God? We need to believe that God is good. He is personal. He is loving. And He is a responsive God. I know you're writing down, but I can't wait for you to say amen right there, right? Okay? God is a good, personal, loving, and responsive God. Amen. Listen to Psalm 86, verses 5 through 10. I want you to note the good, the personal, the loving, the caring, the responsive nature of God in this psalm. I could have chosen a bunch of psalms to read or a bunch of passages to read, but listen to this one. You, Lord, are Notice that. This is who God is. You are. What do we believe about God? You are. What are you, God? Forgiving and good. Anybody glad that God's forgiving tonight, okay? All right. Anybody glad God's forgiving, okay? If you're not glad God's forgiving, you've you got a problem because you haven't understood how much you need forgiveness, right? You, Lord, are, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Now from that, because the psalmist has declared, I know who you are, God. Now notice what happens. Here's the responsive nature to God. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy when I'm in distress. I call to you because you answer me, all right? There's the responsive nature of God. Among the gods, that's a little g, because a little g God really isn't a God, right? It's, some, it's something that is proclaimed to be a God that has no power. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Notice verse 15 of the same passage, Psalm 86. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Anyone tonight glad that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and abounding in faithfulness? This is all about who God is. You have to believe this stuff about God because it affects every part of your life. It affects how you relate to Him. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Here's God's word to us. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. John 10, verses 14 and 15. Jesus' words himself. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Notice what he could have said, I am the shepherd. He didn't just say, I am the shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice, note his goodness there. First John chapter 4 verses 8 and 9. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So note that God not just gives love, but God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice that God has a perfect love toward us that drives away the fear of punishment. John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Notice that God's personal love is God's love, I should say. God's perfect love is both personal and it's extended to everybody. There is not a single person to whom the love of God is not extended. God so loved the world. It is perfect love that drives out fear, but it's also a love that is extended to any and every person. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you've drifted. It doesn't matter to God that what the background of your life might have been. Tonight, what you must understand is that the love of God is directed toward you. It is personal. It is not just something theoretical out there. God loves you. God loves you. He cares deeply about you. It's a personal love that God has for you. So let me ask you this evening, what do you believe about God? Do you believe that God exists? Do you believe, solidly believe that God, in fact, is the one who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit eternally present in three persons so that we can understand the unity of God and the community of God? Do you understand that God is good and personal and loving and responsive? Do you believe these things about God? Because what you believe about Him will affect your relationship with Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. We're so grateful that You're reminding us this evening of the fact that You are a God that not only exists, and that You exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you're a God that is good and personal and caring and kind and gracious to us. You're a God that cares deeply about every person. And I pray that tonight that these reminders of who you are would go deeply within our spirits. That we would be reminded of the reality of of the nature of God and adjust our beliefs in you. So that our beliefs in you are based upon truth. And we pray that our lives would begin to change because of how we begin to believe in you in new and fresh ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's Word that will make a difference in your life now and forever. Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray 
that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life, and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ. And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. We'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with the pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org newbeginnings. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.